The themes of fire and ice are fairly constant in human history, and that is certainly true when it comes to food and cooking. Join us today for a new episode in our seminal kitchen technology series as we explore the spectrum of hot and cold with stoves and refrigerators. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you and where are you? I'm doing great. It's a sunny day and we are actually at Scissor Tail Park in Oklahoma City. So it's a 70-acre public space that was opened in, I think, 2019. It has these amazing play pavilions, the beautiful pond, picnic areas with trellises. They host a farmer's market. There's a food truck extravaganza. I don't know if that's what they call it, but that's what I call it. And as you can imagine, it's very busy here. So if you hear dogs or people, traffic or a trolley, please forgive the added sound or enjoy it. Your choice. Right? This is real life. That's <laughs> that's the reality of life is that there are other people making sounds around you. For sure. So what have you been up to? Oh, my gosh. Uh, a whole lot of work and yeah. getting ready for some fun summertime vacations. I'm going to be planning on heading out to the Bahamas. I'm also going to Alaska and also England and Japan at the end of the year. So I'm just getting all my ducks lined up to go out, have some fun, eat some great meals and being inspired by you and also bringing that fun stuff back to the As We Eat family. That's Fabulous. what's going on with me. I can't right? wait to hear about your travels. Thank you. And well, I love hearing about yours. We have that love of travel in common as well as our love of all things food and history and cooking and culture related. I'm excited to get back to our kitchen technology series because this is a really fun opportunity for us to explore the things that we keep in our kitchens and our pantries. Although technically what's in our pantry is a different series. It's equally fun. I was really inspired today by two things from our past two podcast episodes. One was discussion of what kitchen life was like for an average woman in the mid-19th century. And that's the time when interest in women's suffrage in the United States really captured the collective consciousness. And the second was discovering the research work of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's former Bureau of Home Economics. And that group undertook a series of really interesting research about what home life was like. They did a series of time use studies on the labor of farm and rural women. They broadcast a popular recipe sharing radio show featuring the character of Aunt Sammy. And then also published farmhouse design plans featuring a step-saving kitchen. And all of this history, this rich detail, caused me to actually literally stand in front of my own combination stove and oven and just appreciate it for a minute. Mm. So unlike a cook in 1848, all I have to do to bake a cake is to turn a knob on my stove to a particular marked spot. Actually, I don't even have to turn a knob. I literally press a couple of buttons. <laughs> 
And like 15 minutes later, my oven is 350 or 375 and I'm ready to go. You know, I don't have to stand in front of an open hearth to work a turn spit to roast chicken for a family meal as I might have had to do in the mid 18th century. It's pretty much easy mode these days, right? For my contribution for today's episode, I wanted to take a look at the hot side of the kitchen and the invention and popularization of the stove. And at this point, I'm going to reintroduce a character that we've talked about before, Sir Benjamin Thompson, Count Rumford, who was an American-born British physicist known and highly regarded for his research in thermodynamics. So he was fascinated by the science of heat. We previously talked about Rumford and his contributions to cooking technology in episode 27 on school lunches. He organized workhouses for the poor and indigent, and he is the inventor of Rumsford soup, aka economy soup, which is basically a porridge designed to provide a high degree of nutrition at minimal expense. He was actually really moved by the plight of the poor. It was actually his interest in thermal economy that was influential in the development of a closed hearth cooking system. And historians say that Rumford was basically disgusted by the waste of the typical British open hearths. He felt that there was too much energy expended to provide sustained heat source, also making the kitchen a very hellish place to be. We have that image of the the red-faced cook who's harried and sweating and miserable. He also thought that too much ash and smoke got into the food and spoiled it. And then, of course, there was the danger of noxious exhalations from burning coal, making the, the kitchen a pretty dangerous place to be in. So Rumford invented and custom-built a unique closed-range system featuring several small closed fireplaces that could be closed with a door and had individual channels to direct smoke up into the chimney. And these effectively were little brick boxes. And although this design had really serious scientific and culinary merit, it was a really hard sell commercially, probably because of its reliance on brick. People also were really suspicious of this idea of closing the door on the food. So let me give you a little orientation here. It's 1802. Mr. Big Stuff, Count Rumford, is inventing all these things. And he's also busy establishing the Rumford Professorship at Harvard University, which is now called the Rumford Chair of Physics. It still exists. And meanwhile, British iron founder George Bodley from Devon patented the Kitchener Range. And this is a portable culinary stove featuring a cast iron hot plate over a fire with removable boiling rings and a modern flue. I have a copy of the patent document with illustrations. And we're going to have that available with our episode on the website. So if you need to look at the patent to get a sense of what this is, it'll be available. And this invention is pretty much the precursor to the modern British and American kitchen ages. Before I keep going down this pathway, I just have to mention that there are other technologies existent then and existent in the world about cooking that are not focused on a range. We are going to be focusing on this kind of Western-centric view of the, the range stove. I don't want to overlook too much, though, that there that this is not the only way to cook in the world. Clay ovens still a thing. Cooking over open fire is still a thing in some parts of the world. And rather than solemnly march us through fueling techniques, and believe me, I was really tempted to talk about the the value of wood versus coal versus gas versus electricity. I'm just planning on staying the course on how we ended up centering our kitchens around this fireless fire that is the stove rather than just sticking along with the open hearth. 
something that we address in episode 23 on Dutch ovens is that there's this massive influx of cast iron goods into the marketplace in the industrial era. So innovations in cast iron production made it easier, cheaper to produce almost anything you wanted out of cast iron. And so that brought about new cookware, as well as gates for your family estate or ornaments, new innovations in building. And with that, suddenly the Kitchener range was a notable status symbol of a middle-class kitchen. And this was interesting because not only could you pick out the design that you wanted, because cast iron can be covered with porcelain or enamel. So now you're talking about different colors and different patterns and different decorative symbols, but it quickly became pretty indispensable. These early things were beasts, but you could do so much more with one unit than you could do with several different things over an open fire. And there were many Kitchener models on display at the British Great Exhibition of 1851. In particular, the improved Leamington Kitchener was greatly admired, especially by Mrs. Beaton, who is infamous and famous in the culinary scene. And this particular model won awards. It featured the ability to both roast and bake with a single fire just by changing around valves and how they were exposed or not exposed to the heat source. And importantly, it could boil water for household use making it actually really indispensable beyond cooking. So as I've said, suddenly you, your hearth is getting smaller, a little bit more centralized, a little bit more efficient, and you're able to do multiple things with it rather than have to have the pot over the fire for the stew, and then you've got to bake the bread differently, and you've got to have boiling water for childbirth and towels, I guess. <laughs> I always hear about boiling water <laughs> when you're having water. babies, like, boil the water! Uh, and that's obviously because water uh, quality has been pretty suspect. But yeah. And so from here, I'm actually going to move us swiftly along to the modern electric stove. Basically, the type of model we might have in our own homes. Although it did not have a really fantastic debut into culinary life, the very first electric stove made its appearance in 1890, just 11 years after Thomas Edison gave the first public demonstration of his incandescent light bulb. And those early models were pretty notoriously unpredictable because they did not have thermostats. So there was little heat control, no heat specificity beyond low, medium and high, which kind of equated to the difference between a raw or burnt chicken. But they cooked faster than coal. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that part of General Electric Company's pitch for electric stoves was that a pint of water could be brought to boil in just 12 minutes. Think about that in contrast to uh, what a feat that would be for somebody who was used to cooking over coal. It might take twice as long, three times as long to bring some water to boil. So the efficacy of being able to do that in 12 minutes would be pretty outstanding. And it made the phrase... Oh, I'll put the kettle on. More poignant for me, actually. Putting a kettle on would be a, a really dedicated act over coal, as opposed to just popping it on your electric or gas cooker. And speaking of gas, gas cooking really grew in parallel with electricity. And to this day, we still have many camps deeply entrenched in the superiority of gas versus electricity for cooking. What camp are you in, Leigh? I know by necessity you have a certain kind of stove, I think, but... Yeah, we do. We have propane, which I love to cook over gas. I also have an old 1952, not in the van, 1952 General Electric range that nice. is electric that I 
absolutely love because it bakes so evenly. Mm. But I, yeah, so stovetop, I really like gas oven. I prefer electric. It's a little bit more predictable and it's it's not a wet heat yeah. like gas is. I, I have to say, I really do like gas in the kitchen, but I have electric. We, our kitchen, our home was built in 1967 and the kitchen just wasn't wired for natural gas. I like the electric for baking, mm-hmm. actually. So I'm with you on that one because I, I feel like it's a pretty consistent, standard, even heating. But I, I kind of miss having a gas cooktop because I liked how minutely you could control the flame. You know, you could kind of dial it into an exact science where electric feels a little kind of hit and miss sometimes. Agreed. Suffice it to say, stove technology has steadily improved with the ability to control temperature, exactly what we're talking about. At least in the U.S., we have now eased away from cooking over wood with the exception of campfire cooking, and we instead have turned more towards methodical, scientific approaches to cooking food with recipes calling for precise cooking temperatures and times. And this is something that we have explored many times in episodes about that changeover. And if you missed episode 25 on campfire cooking, I really, really recommend it. We had a great time talking about the the culture of cooking over open flame Mm -hmm. and how differently it feels to cook and eat food cooked actually in the open one of the things we had talked about was it feels like you do connect with your ancestors in a way who also had been cooking this way for a really long time and i want to leave this subject with this thought while we know a lot about how to transform the state of food from raw to cooked we're still very much in the process of discovery, rediscovery, and reinvention of the technologies that we use to do so. Just look at the intervention of microwave ovens into cooking. And we're constantly finding new ways to cook in our homes. I always like to think about what is coming next. And as our food changes and as our approaches to food change, how that influences the technology and then in turn how the technology influences what we eat. With fuel prices skyrocketing these days, Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see if we find a return to cold foods and cold salads and things that are not needing to be served piping hot. But that coldness has has its own technology related to it. It really does. And in keeping with this appliance theme today, I would like to talk about the appliance that really relies on that coldness. And I think it's an appliance that we really take for granted until the power goes out. (laughs) I'm talking about the refrigerator. Keeping things cold isn't a new concept. As early as 1000 BCE, the Chinese, Romans, and Greeks were storing ice and snow in caves as a way to preserve foods. So we have always had this need and this desire to preserve the foods that are around us. It really wasn't until about the 18th century that we start to see this research and innovation around developing artificial systems that make ice and machines that cool things down. Up until this point, keeping things cold really was an arduous and often expensive task. In the 1850s, here in the States especially, we had this huge demand for ice because the ice box had gained popularity. 
In the states, ice was harvested from rivers commercially in states like New York and Maine. And I just wanted to run through this process of harvesting ice. So initially, and this all is happening in the winter, obviously, when the ponds, lakes, and rivers are frozen, the initial process is to plane the surface of the ice with a steel blade that's drawn by a horse because you had all sorts of impurities that were on top. So that had to be cleared off first. And then the ice needed to be marked in 24 to 30 inch squares. And this was done by a horse-drawn cart. The next process was to make those grooves even deeper. Another horse-drawn cart. All of these processes that are, have been happening, all of the slush that's created needs to be cleaned away. So you have these little boys, these young boys, who are following behind these horses with shovels, scooping up this slush and getting rid of it so that the ice stays pretty pristine. Because one of the mm -hmm. things that was really important about the ice is that you could get more money for the cleaner ice. And if it was clear, it was even more expensive. So then after these boys had cleared all of the slush and dirt and muck away, men would come in with ice saws, ice hooks, splitting implements, and following the grooves, they would cut and create these rafts of ice and float them into a narrow channel that ran to an ice elevator. And then the ice cool. elevator raised the blocks up into these ice houses for storage. Now, I want to just go back for a second. As I was researching this, all I could think about was how many people died making ice. Right. I was wondering the same thing. I couldn't find numbers, but yeah. most of the things that I read talked about how dangerous this industry was. There was the, the risk of, of obviously of falling in if the ice was not thick enough. Yep. Or even if it was, falling between blocks and getting crushed, crushed. or drowned. Just general exposure if yep. you weren't wearing the right clothes. It's not like exactly like they had Gore-Tex back then. Exactly. I know you don't catch a cold from being cold, but it can lower your body defenses. So just working out in the environment like that all the time and then yeah. getting... Running into pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. So very dangerous. And these storage systems were huge and complex. So as the ice was being pulled out of the channels and put into these ice houses, the blocks, these 24 by 24 by 24 or 30 by 30 by 30 blocks were stacked on top of each other. And then they were covered with some straw and then the barges would come up and the whole process would be reversed because they had all started to freeze together. So you had to cut mm. these blocks apart to move them. It's, it was a huge process. Wow. And the capacity of some of these storage systems, these storage houses, ice houses, were between 5,000 and 80,000 tons of ice. It was a huge Whoa. industry. <laughs> it's a huge industry. Right? And much like a lot of the foods that we've talked about in previous episodes, this really was a luxury item. It was very mm. expensive. The demise of the ice industry was due to a new technology. And I love that you talked about how technology has changed these things and what is that technology going to look like moving forward. The ice industry was impacted very significantly by new refrigerators and ice making machines. The first adopters of these refrigeration systems were industries. Breweries and meat packers were the first to embrace the technology. German immigrants recognized the benefit of refrigeration with the ability to create this consistent product regardless of the seasons. Thanks, immigrants. We salute you. We salute you. 
It was about a decade later that the meatpacking industry would install refrigeration systems. I, for me, I was like, don't you think maybe you should have embraced this a little bit earlier? But by 1914, almost all of the packing facilities had installed this ammonia compression system. And this improved the quality of the meat as well as the quantity that could be processed. So we're starting to see this industry not just of processing meats for specific areas, but now you had the ability to move more amounts of meat Mm -hmm. further away from where the sources were. So the refrigeration not only had an impact on food safety, but it also provided this mechanism, as I just mentioned, to introduce food to locations that weren't available because of growing seasons, conditions. We talked about how the Industrial Revolution moved people away from farms. There weren't any production facilities specifically in these areas to feed these people. So refrigeration helped to move foods into a lot of areas. Yeah. And also to open up, I I would imagine, some culinary horizons, because that was one of the things that we talked about in our last episode was the idea that your food supply was, at least in the late 19th century, was hyper-localized. You weren't getting things from the other side of the country. Yep. Yep. You think about things like peaches and apples and cherries that relied on moving outside of those areas, Washington, Georgia, into other areas. So these refrigerated rail cars, actually, that were patented in 1867 is what helped to move a lot of produce and a lot of food throughout the states. They also helped to establish cities like Chicago and Kansas City. Both of those were slaughterhouse centers, and it was only because of these railroad cars that those cities really grew to what they were. Chicago probably a little bit more with grain, but Kansas City specifically for slaughterhouse centers. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up again the Santa Fe Topeka line, and I might not have that order exactly right. Topeka to Santa Fe, I think it might have been, because that was the real line on which the Harvey houses were established. So back again to our diner (laughs) episode. And a a quick aside, we have on our travel itinerary to stop in Winslow, Arizona at the Harvey House Museum. Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yay. I'm please. I'm sure you will. But please do a photo essay of that for us. Oh, absolutely. I I think we all would really get a kick out of checking that out. Yes. So the other thing is that by bringing these foods to some of these areas that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get them in is that it really helped to create a more healthy diet. Mm. So you have meat and produce, eggs, butter, cheese that are now being shipped to locales that may not necessarily have had those. So 120 years later, it's really easy to see the advantages of refrigeration. But as with all new technologies, there were issues. And for refrigeration, the issues were related to safety. The refrigerants that were used originally were sulfur oxide, methyl chloride, as well as ammonia. And when these leaked, people died. Mm. Right. Yeah. So in 1928, Frigidaire actually discovered a synthetic refrigerant called halocarbons or CFCs 
chlorofluorocarbons, which were much safer than the other three refrigerants. Now, Freon has been banned because it's been deemed harmful for the ozone layer. We still had some of these issues, but moving forward, we had much safer refrigerants. By 1921, 5,000 refrigerators were manufactured in the U.S. Ten years later, over 1 million refrigerators were manufactured. Now, the interesting thing about this, if you add 10 to 21, it's 1931. And we're starting to get into the Depression. Yeah. Refrigerators were really sold during the Depression, which was so fascinating to me. Oh, that's really interesting. Six years later, there were 6 million refrigerators in production. By 1950, more than 80% of American farms and more than 90% of urban homes had a refrigerator. But just let's think about this for a second. Only 70 years ago, still 20% of rural homes and 10% of urban homes still didn't have refrigerators. I mean, we do take this for granted, especially here in the States. This is one of the things that you expect. If you go looking for an apartment, you expect a refrigerator and an oven in the apartment. And when it's not there, it kind of spins you. You're right. If you'll allow me just a quick personal anecdote, a couple years ago, I ended up doing a California coastal walk with my mom. These are tours offered by an organization that is trying to bring awareness to access to the California coastline. Since we were going to be basically doing a version of urban hiking, we were supposed to bring meals. And it was a real challenge. I needed to pack food that didn't need to be heated and it didn't need to be refrigerated. And it was a huge challenge. I ended up coming back to some of the more what we might think of as more traditional foods like pemmican and jerky and dried fruit and dried vegetables because that's what I could do. That wouldn't also be heavy. So just to that point, to your point about how when you don't have access to your stove or your refrigerator, Mm -hmm. at least in this modern era, it throws you off. Right. I thought that was really interesting because that was only just 70 years ago. 70 years ago. 70 years ago. I know people older than that. (laughs) Right? 20%. So only 20%, about 22%. Is that what you said? 20% of rural households and 10% still did not have refrigerators in 1950. Yeah. I think that one of the things that refrigeration really has done is that it's caused Americans to rethink how we purchase, prepare, and store foods. According to Bern Nagengast, who's the author of Heat and Cold Mastering the Great Indoors, the household refrigerator changed the way that people ate and socially affected the household. Now, prior to the refrigerator, a huge amount of women's time went into preserving food. Brewing beer to save grains, making wine to preserve fruits, preserving fruits and vegetables, drying meats, making pickles, and having refrigerators reduced some of that. Not, now, not all of that, but certainly a big portion of that preservation was reduced, in addition to the fact that we had refrigerated rail cars that were now bringing fresh fruits and vegetables, meats and cheese and, and milk into some of these locations that you didn't necessarily have to preserve them. You knew that you could go to the store to get some of these things. Having a refrigerator also didn't change the way that food tasted. All of these preserving methods really changed the way that the foods taste once you put them in a pickle brine, once you turn them into beer, once you put the vegetables and the fruits in cans and drying fruits. Mm -hmm. So it really was a benefit to the taste of the foods that 
that we were now getting. The thing that was really interesting to me is that the refrigerator actually became a symbol of the unity of the middle class. Now, we're talking about women who lived in servantless households. This appliance became this uniting symbol that tied them to the preparation of the family meal. Because they didn't have servants, they had to do this themselves. So this refrigerator really united them mm. in that part of running a household. We've mentioned many times throughout our episodes this concept of purity in food. And the mm -hmm. first refrigerators really played into this concept. They were white and white is what people associated with cleanliness. And according to Shelley Nichols, who's the author of Preserving Women, Refrigerator Design as Social Process in the 1930s, quote, the refrigerator's primary function, preserving food, was now linked visually to the responsibilities of the average housewife to provide a clean, safe environment for her family. Contrasting to diverse localized practices of food preservation and wooden ice boxes kept in service areas and used primarily by servants, these white steel refrigerators were conceptualized as part of the ordinary kitchen. By buying a white refrigerator and keeping it in the kitchen, the housewife expressed her awareness of modern sanitary and food preservation standards. Her ability to keep the refrigerator white and devoid of dirt represented <laughs> the extent to which she met these standards. Whoa. Yeah. So essentially, the color of the refrigerator signified how much she cared about the safety and health of her family. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And it really oh. became this point of pride. And mm -hmm. I just, I want to talk a little bit about the color of the refrigerator. because Yeah, please. Obviously, this white color was very important because we had this concept about the purity of our food, and we were starting to understand safety protocols. But I want to talk about like the 1970s, right? Because right. I really think that color and design of the refrigerator, even today, is associated with our station economically and socially. Yes. For me growing up, if your house did not have the 1970s either gold harvest or avocado oh, yeah. green suite of appliances, there was this perception that you couldn't keep up with the trends or with the Joneses, which yep. was so important at that time. And so many of them, so many of the colors were influenced by the explosion in plastics, weren't yes. they? Yes. I can totally see that correlation between if you weren't hip or affluent enough to be able to buy into and incorporate this new technology into your home, that you were old fashioned. I can also remember the trend that followed after for red and aqua in kitchens. Mm -hmm. and that's not in the 70s. That's more, I'd say, the 90s and 2000s. Again, not fueled by any particular change up in literal technology of how things are being cooled, but the, the fashion economics of the kitchen were also really a big deal then. Yeah. And now I think that the, the big thing is stainless steel. The fact that you have a stainless steel appliances seems to be speaking to not only that you have the means, mm. but that mm -hmm. you have the taste. Yes. 
Absolutely. And to have I, that in your home. Yes. And I also think that the stainless steel really hearkens to this whole new celebrity chef. Yes, absolutely. And today we see these commercials for refrigerators that emphasize not only the design, but also health and wellness, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. You have these refrigerators that are just packed with the most beautiful produce And you feel like if you don't have the newest refrigerator that you're clearly not caring for your family. It's so interesting. Yeah, that you're somehow you're prioritizing something less important. Exactly. We have a really large, really awesome Asian market locally here. And in that, they sell appliances. And I always love stopping and looking at the refrigerators and the rice cookers because they are technological marvels. Uh You can have compartments that are different temperatures. So foods that need like cold, dry conditions, you can control that part of the refrigerator separately from another one that maybe warmer, more humid would be more appropriate. And it keeps track of what you've got in your refrigerator right. as well. So it becomes this home organization technique that I think is fascinating. What's interesting is that you talk about these different zones that are now created in the refrigerators. Advertisements originally also extolled the economic benefits of purchasing refrigerators. So we're still on that bent. And this mm. is an ad from an issue of American Magazine 1932 for the Sears Cold Spot Refrigerator. Tomorrow's refrigerator, ultra-modern to its massive chromium-plated hardware, sealed freezing unit with a lifetime oil supply that never needs thought, operates at about half the cost of ice, one-piece, no-seam porcelain interior with rounded corners is easy to clean, unqualified guaranteed, approved by Good Housekeeping Institute, four sizes, each priced at a triple savings. Whoa. Yeah. The thing I, I'm I'm thinking about as we're talking about refrigerators and stoves is also how the two technologies have actually come together to form a suite in our kitchen in a way that I think is incredibly modern. Brands gave rise to the idea of the kitchen suite so that you had this sort of series of matching materials, you know, talking about refrigerator colors that your stove and your, your refrigerator matched. Right. And how important that was. One of the things that I had read in Consider the Fork by B. Wilson is this idea that these were once the organizing principle of a kitchen, your stove and your refrigerator. But now another new addition to this and a topic we're going to have to bring up another time in our kitchen technology series is this idea of the countertop appliances, as it were. All in matching colors. Now you can get your Star Wars, you can get your Star Wars suite of Le Creuset. So it's fascinating how Both of these things keep moving along together. It's no longer what's the most efficient. Now it's what looks the best in the kitchen. But a topic for next time. Yes, for sure. Speaking of next time, let's give you a little preview of what is coming up on the next edition of As We Eat. We're going to be taking on a request for a fisherman stew. I'm really excited about this topic. Um, This was a request by Robin Ove. And I think that there are so many ways that we can talk about a fisherman's stew. I think that there's a lot that we're going to learn about this stew. Yeah, I'm eager to see whether I can figure out a tie into mahogany, the (laughs) the famous popular drink among Cornish fishermen. Still haven't met one. So if you're out there, I really want to meet you. But no, I'm excited about this because I actually don't know. I don't eat a lot of fish in my own diet. And so 
I'm, I'm excited to learn. So you're going to get a novice take in the next episode. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us really, really, really happy if you could share this episode with a friend or two and review and rate it on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And I do know now that Spotify does have a review function, so you can review there as well. Five stars, pretty please. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and Lay and Eric's travel stops as we eat going places. There are four subscription tiers, so we're pretty sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you. And you can find the As We Eat Journal at asweeat.substack.com. Thank you to our subscribers. We couldn't do it without you. Absolutely. And just in case you weren't aware, you've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project, exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. Ba-ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba.